Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. We have been uh, exploring our way, if you will, through uh, seven important prophecy terms, and we're comparing and contrasting those seven sets of terms to give us a better understanding uh, of these terms as we look at uh, the prophetic events that are yet to unfold before us. And of course, uh, I'm looking forward to sharing with you 30 uh, chronologically sequenced events in prophecy, starting with what's going on today and taking us all the way through the end of Revelation, which would be eternity. So I've um, got 30 of those events, which I think give us a good broad overview of prophecy that is yet to be unfolded before us, but which God has given us uh, in his gracious love in detail for us to read and more importantly to understand because we know from his word that if we will study his word, that if we will come to an understanding through a study of his word, his character, his will for our lives to find out what pleases him that he is very gracious and will share the details of all his plans with us because they're there in front of us. They're there in black and white in, in English for us. Yet, you can read those scriptures like an unbelieving academic looking at it as a work of Shakespeare or something and can come away with some nuggets of information, but you will not understand the flow of God's word unless you have God's Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And you can only have God's Holy Spirit dwelling within you if you first accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because the Word tells us the moment you accept Christ, you have a, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into you immediately. It does not manifest itself with speaking in tongues or anything like that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Tongues are for a specific time and a specific purpose, and they were wonderful in their time, but they are, they are not for us today. The, the Holy Spirit manifests himself by working in and through us, opening our eyes to the Scripture, and through opening our eyes to the Scripture, it leads us to want to be about the good works that God has given us through the, the gifting of the Holy Spirit. So, it's important that we understand it from that perspective, because if we don't, then this is all just um, another interesting novel that, as the naysayers say, is full of death and bloodshed and brutality, and boy, I don't like your God because I don't like that book. Well, all of that has its purpose, and it has a wonderful purpose if you'll simply study it, uh, because God has planned it that way. There is a specific godly purpose for all that's happened in the Bible and even more importantly, all that's going to happen in the Bible. And he wants us to know that. So that's what, that's what we're all about in this teaching ministry, 
is understanding and exploring God's prophecies so that we can have the confident hope, the confident expectation of eternity with him and uh, what it is we should be doing now that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of our life. And we have been in point number one in these seven points, these seven sets of prophetic terms. And of course, as the announcer has told you, you can get these at the website here at WHCB Radio. And uh, I would highly suggest that you take those, download them, because there's so many scriptures, it's hard to follow along without, uh, without having the program, so to speak. And we have been looking at the promise of Jesus that was given by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, uh, which was 1,400 years before Christ came. Then we went through um, Dan- the prophecy in Daniel 9 and the uh, fulfillment of that prophecy, uh, or at least uh, the, the 69 weeks of the 70 weeks of that uh, prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. We see that being fulfilled as we read in Luke 19, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem, uh, just as he's ready to enter Jerusalem on the donkey at the beginning of his Passion Week to be crucified, and he wails and tells the Israelites, you know, you could have known that this was me on this specific day and why I am here, because it was all laid out in the prophetic scriptures, and particularly in Daniel chapter 9, as well as others but principally Daniel chapter 9. He could have known, and even he de- even describes, Jesus describes um, uh, in so many words the passage there in Daniel 9, that prophecy that uh, I'm here, you've missed me, therefore the temple is going to be destroyed. And that's exactly what Daniel prophesied. And that was what? Almost 600 years before Christ came. So we went through those to show you the, the, the wonderful grace and goodness of God that he, he told the Israelites not only am I sending you a prophet who would be Jesus, you're to listen to him, and I'm going to tell you when he's coming. But they were blinded by sin, and they did not see it, and therefore they've had to go through these 2,000 years of walking in the darkness, and it's going to culminate in the tribulation. That last week, remember in Daniel's prophecy, there were 70 weeks, and 69 of those weeks finished with the crucifixion of Christ. So now we've got one week left, and that's the period that has been put on hold. It wasn't done away with. It was put on hold um, because God is a covenant-keeping God, and he will keep his promises to Israel. But in the interim, while Israel is being held on hold in partial blindness, as you read in in Romans 11.25, they are in partial blindness because God has turned his attention to the church, which he promised um, back in uh, Matthew chapter 16, that he would establish his church based on Peter's profession that Jesus was and is indeed the son of the living God. So we have, um, we have all of this wonderfully laid out for us here, and we were in our last program going through some more confirmations of Deuteronomy chapter 18, establishing Jesus as the son of God, because again, Deuteronomy 18 said, this is my son, and whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And then we went to Matthew chapter 3, and this is when Jesus was um, being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan at the very beginning of his three-and-a-half-year ministry on the earth. And the key point uh, that we brought out there was that when Jesus went into the Jordan to be baptized, and of course the point is, or the question is, why would John the Baptist 
a mere human be baptizing Jesus, the Son of God? Well, there was a very distinct purpose for that, and hopefully you caught that in our last program. If not, let's reiterate that visually you're looking at the Jordan, you're standing on the bank, and you see John the Baptist, who you have highly venerated. John has come as a forerunner of Christ, preparing the way for Christ, and he's baptizing, and people are coming to John to be baptized. They think he is the penultimate. He, he's the one we're looking for. So God makes sure that they don't misunderstand who John the Baptist is. So he positions Jesus next to John, lets John baptize him. You know, people are scratching their heads. If this guy's the son of God, what's going on here? And then it says, a voice came out of heaven and said, this, Jesus, is my son in whom I am well pleased. So God personally intervenes in humankind by voice and and designates Jesus, not John the Baptist, Jesus as the one they should be focusing on. So I think that's so clear that he does this at the very beginning of his ministry because it's interesting that right after this, what happens? Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and he's tempted by Satan, immediately tempted by Satan. So he goes through all of the experiences to the greatest degree of what mankind would go through with these direct temptations of of, um, Satan when he's tired and when he's hungry and been in the wilderness for 40 days. And he passes, of course, with a 100% score. So the point is, he experienced everything man experiences, yet he did not sin. So God has clarified right up front in his ministry, this is my son. Then we go to Matthew 17, and I was laying out the context for Matthew 17 by going back to Matthew 10, when Jesus commissioned the apostles to go out and to tell Israel, Israel only, not the Gentiles, not the Samaritans, only the Israelites, because that was the promise, that the Messiah would come to Israel and that Israel would come to faith in him, and that that Israel would take that understanding of the gospel to the world, that the world would be evangelized through Israel, no one else. That was God's plan. So he sends the apostles out. He had been doing it himself uh, individually. Then he commissioned the 12 to go out and help him with it. They went out. They came back um, in Matthew 16 He asked them, who do the people say I am? And they basically said, nobody believes you're the Jesus of uh, the promised Messiah, that you're Jesus the Christ. They think you're anybody but. And Jesus then says, okay, Matthew, uh, the account in Matthew 16 shows that Peter makes that profession. He says, while Israel doesn't believe you are who you are, we do. And Peter made that profession that Jesus was the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, based on your profession, I will build my future church, that those who believe and profess like you, they will be my church. And then he turns right around, right there in Matthew 16, and says, because of this unbelief in Israel, I'm going to turn my back on Israel. I'm going to change my ministry from the gospel of the kingdom to the gospel of grace. And we'll talk about that because that's point number three in our important prophecy terms worksheet that we need to understand the difference between those two Gospels. They're very distinct. They're very different. 
uh, and the the uh, focus, the target of those gospels is totally different. Yet people, even even ministers, will combine those two, mix them up, and it will mix you up if you don't understand it. But here is where Jesus in Matthew 16 changes from his focus intent on sharing the gospel of the kingdom to going to the gospel of grace and personal salvation. Gospel of the kingdom was corporate salvation. Gospel of grace is personal salvation. And he says, in order to do that, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried, but I'm going to resurrect on the third day. And of course, Peter says, no, you're not. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) So, They've gone from a high point of recognizing Jesus and professing that to him and hearing about the promised future of the church to a very low point where they're being told that their leader, Jesus, is going to be taken from them. He's going to be crucified. And even though he explained it in very clear terms, it's clear to us because we're looking back from a historical perspective. But to them, they had never comprehended this before. So uh, Luke, particularly, the book of Luke, is particularly clear in pointing out that the three different times that Jesus shared with the apostles that he was going to have to be crucified and buried and resurrected, it said they didn't understand him. They couldn't grasp, comprehend what he was talking about, and therefore they were very frustrated. So in this particular context here in Matthew, this is Matthew 16, so he takes, Jesus takes a handful of the apostles, and goes to uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's some debate about whether it's Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor. I tend to think it's Mount Tabor uh, in the Galilee. But whatever the case, it was a mount, so therefore it was taking them from a spiritual low point in Matthew 16 to a spiritual high point in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, that's Matthew chapter 17. We've covered it before, and you can read that in the first uh, 10 or 15 verses there. But basically what's happened is he takes them up there, and in front of them, in front of their eyes, he is transfigured from his Jesus of 33 A.D. or 32 A.D. to the Jesus that will be the glorified Jesus at his second coming. So they see him in all of his radiant glory as the reigning Son of God, And what's important is not only do they see him for what he will be, what he has been promised he will be, but they also see people that they have venerated who are humans. On the one side of Jesus is the glorified Moses, and on the other side of Jesus is the glorified Elijah. These are two very, very important figures to the Israelites from the Old Testament, and they worshiped Moses. In fact, even today, they talk about Moses. They talk about Abraham going back, you know, 1400 and going back 2000 years. They venerate them over Jesus, even today. And then, of course, you have Elijah, one of the very important prophets that was taken up to heaven. He didn't die. He was taken up to heaven. So he's he's put one on one side and one on the other with Jesus being in the middle. So you have a a kind of a similar situation you had with John the Baptist in the Jordan with Jesus standing next to John the Baptist. And remember back in Matthew chapter 3, God's voice came from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. 
to differentiate Jesus from John the Baptist to make sure the people did not misunderstand who they should be focusing their faith on. Now he's done the same thing again right at the beginning of when Jesus starts his um, geographic movement, if you will, from the Galilee to Jerusalem to be crucified. Israel has turned their backs on him. He's changed his gospel focus from the kingdom to grace to the church, and now he's working his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. At the very beginning of that, he shows the apostles that uh, visually shows him with Moses and Elijah and then God's voice, just like at the Jordan with John the Baptist. God's voice comes booming out of heaven and says, not only this is my son whom I'm well pleased, but listen to him. The exact phrase that was used by Moses through the leading of the Holy Spirit in Deuteronomy 18, 1400 years before. So the prophecy has been made real to these people. How do we know that it's been made real? Because Peter, who was there, tells us so. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We've just left Matthew 17, the account of the Mount of Transfiguration. And now we're going to read Peter's account of that himself. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is Peter recounting what happened. Uh, An utterance made by God, made by him, by the majestic glory. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we, referring to himself and the people that were there, we have the prophetic word made more sure. We've not only heard it, we've seen it. We've seen both. We were there. We were personal witnesses of what went on. So that has made the written word, the written prophetic word more sure to which you, now talking to us, the church, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So Peter's making a very major statement right here. I've seen Jesus. I've seen him singled out by God himself in front of me, making sure that I did not venerate and worship Moses. I did not venerate and worship Elijah, that I should only worship and venerate Jesus, the Son of God. That has made been, made, been made so clear to me, Peter, and now I want you, precious church, to understand the same thing. Okay, we're going to move on to another aspect of the Son of God in our next program as we talk about Jesus and why it's important for him when he came to be in the likeness of man so that the Son of God would be made real and be made flesh in front of us. So we're going to do that 
in our next program. But we want to get back to our question again from Rich in Indian Springs about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit working in the world and his particular question about the fact that Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that the restrainer of evil is going to be taken out of the way right before the Antichrist is revealed and the Antichrist begins the seven-year tribulation. And um, um, Rich makes the point very clear, and I believe accurately, that the restrainer of evil is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. In other words, taken off the earth through the medium through whom the Holy Spirit has been working during the church age, and that's the church. When you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in you. Uh, The Holy Spirit of God becomes a resident within you, indwells you. And as we'll read later here in, in answering this question, the Holy Spirit never leaves you. So the restrainer of evil, the Holy Spirit, is the church. And when the church is taken out of the way at what's called the rapture, then the seven-year tribulation can begin. So Rich's question, and it's a very good question, is, well, if the Holy Spirit resides in the church and the church is taken off the earth to heaven so that the tribulation can begin, how can people be saved during the tribulation? And he gave us Revelation 20, verse 4, to understand that there will be people saved during the tribulation. So we've read those verses Uh, talked about them in in some detail, and then we started to uh, break it down. And one of the first questions that I brought up or asked uh, in this way of answering uh, Rich's point is, let's look at the triune Godhead and see how they manifested themselves in the Bible to understand how the Holy Spirit could still be on the earth, even though the church, the home of the Holy Spirit, if you will, is taken off the earth. And the first question we asked in looking at the triune Godhead was Father God. And the, the simple question was, well, why isn't Father God, not, fa- not uh, God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, but why isn't Father God here working with us today? Like Jesus walked the earth, why isn't God here? Because he did walk the earth at one point. So we wanted to go back and explore that a little bit, and we did it in Genesis because you want to talk about God creating the earth uh, to start with, and that's in Genesis chapter 1 and then amplified in Genesis chapter 2. But we went to Genesis 1-1 to point out that the triune Godhead was present at the beginning and that the triune Godhead was responsible. And when I say triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead was responsible for bringing about creation week. And we know that because even though we look at the English, we have to if we're going to be good um, explorers of Bible prophecy, we got to look under the rocks and boulders and whatnot and look for detail. And one of the ways you do that is to understand that the Bible wasn't originally written in English. I know that bothers some of you, <laughs> but it wasn't originally written in English. It was written in Hebrew, and then it was written in Greek, and then it was translated to Latin. As a matter of fact, that's where the word rapture, people jump up and down and say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it's not in the Hebrew and the Greek, but in the New Testament where we talk about the rapture, the Greek word is harpazo, and what happened is Jerome, and I believe it was the 4th century, took the Greek and translated it into Latin so that the 
the Roman Catholic Church could get their Bible going. So he translated it into Latin, and the Latin word for harpazo, which means to snatch away, is rapturo. That's where we get rapture from. So it's in the Bible. It's just uh, which language are you talking about? The concept is the same, whether it's rapture, harpazo, or rapturo, it's still the same. So uh, we need to look at that, and, and the reason I bring it up is the word God in, he, in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim, and Elohim is a plural form. So yes, it says God, and it'll say God in other places, but you have to look at the Hebrew to understand what manifestation of God are we talking about. So here it's the Elohim, plural of God, is responsible for creation week. And we see God, the Elohim, in one. We see the Spirit of God in verse 2. We see light in verse 3. And we know the light there is a reference to the, third, the, the other component of the triune Godhead, God the Son, who is referred to as the light of the world. Because the physical, material light that you and I see because of the sun and the moon reflecting off of the sun isn't created for several days into creation week, yet here it is, let there be light in verse 3. So we have the three components, the Elohim of the triune Godhead, all through creation week. And then at the end of our last program, we got into Genesis chapter 2, and showed the distinction here in the understanding the Hebrew. In verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, Then Elohim, God, blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he, God, rested from all his work which Elohim had created and made. Verse 4, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Adonai Jehovah made earth and heaven. So we've seen a different aspect of God here, a different name for God. We've gone from Elohim, the plural, to Adonai Jehovah, talking about God the Father as opposed to God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we see this term used in these um, this chapter and the next chapter where man is brought into the picture. Adam and Eve are brought into the picture and God directly interacts with them on the earth. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3, and let's go to verse 8. Now, a key thing to understand here is that Adam has followed his wife Eve into uh, sin, and they have taken from the one tree, the fruit of the one tree in the garden they were told not to mess with, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they have been tempted to do that by Satan, and Satan has caused them to eat of it and therefore to fall, to become wise in their own eyes, and they have now um, put um, a covering on their naked bodies, uh, a loin covering or a, a sewed fig leaves, as it says in the Bible. And God is now confronting them, and it says in verse 8, they heard the sound of Adonai Jehovah walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai Jehovah among the trees of the garden. So it's important we want to understand this. This is when God was walking on the earth with man. And I want to expand on that a little bit more before we move on. 
and we'll do that in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.